0: Hello and welcome to The Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and as always, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, hello, my friends. It's great to be back on the airwaves. This is a very special edition of The Paranormal Sun, the first in nearly a year. So I do apologize for that, and the first episode I've done in quite a while where we're not going to go in-depth about my health issues. So yeah, today here, it is a public holiday. It is Waitangi Day. Some people call it similar to an American 4th of July. It's not really. It's two different things. So as opposed to the U.S. where the government and other entities trampled all over the Native Americans for hundreds of years, here, although not perfect, and I am by no means an in-depth expert on New Zealand's history, I know a fair bit. However, there was a treaty signed with the English at the time, the British Empire, uh, basically between the Maori, who are the indigenous people here. There is a lot of controversy, depending on which side of the fence you sit on here. However, there is one thing to me that I never doubt, and that's that I'm a guest here. Even though I am a citizen, this is my country. I love this country, and... I would fight and die for it if it came down to that. However, at the end of the day, I have been here a very short time in the grand scheme of things. So I try not to get too in-depth with anything uh, regarding some of those very controversial things that stir up a lot of emotions. The bottom line is, here it is our national day. Uh, Now, there has been quite a bit happening in the media in that here, change of government, etc., But we're not going to get into that on this episode of The Paranormal Sun. The reality is it's summer. It's pretty warm here for us. It's uh, been nice weather, pretty clear and sunny. I will be getting out on the barbecue in a while. I went ahead and got some chores done this morning. I didn't have the best night's sleep, but I was bound and determined to get on here. Now, I want to first and foremost give some shout-outs to a few people and I'll go through them in order. Firstly, I've got two very good friends that I have met through this podcast and my uh what would you call it, social media activities, etc. Now one is Russ from formerly hangar 18 radio. Now I believe Russ I do apologize if I've got this wrong, but I think it's Alien Clickbait. Now is Russ's new program and Russ has been pretty fastidious about checking in on me over the years and also Jeff from Badgerland Legends. These two guys keep up with me on a daily basis. We catch up on social media, and they check in on me, and I really do appreciate it, fellows. Uh, I had a really difficult time, as you know, over the last few months, and it was great to know that somebody cared. Not that you're the only ones, but you were some of the most persistent to make sure I was okay on a day-to-day basis, so thank you to my friends in the great state of Wisconsin. Now, another Shout out goes to our friend and chapter president in India, Tuaday. Tuaday checked in with me. I've been very lax on the paranormal sun side of social media. I forget to switch my Instagram over and go and check it out. So I had a few things sitting in there. One of them was from Tuaday. And Tuaday, just thank you. Tuaday said, again, just making sure I was okay, hope that I was all right and I was recovering okay. And then also said, don't feel any pressure, but it would be great if you had some new content out there. I really miss the show. I really miss the things that you cover, JT. I'd really love for you to get some stuff out there. So two a day, thanks for being part of my motivation for getting this episode out. And last but definitely not least, old friend of the show, Al Cooley from Ghosts in the Valley podcast. I woke up this morning, well, more like (laughs) noonish. I woke up and had a message from Al saying, Very short and succinct. And Al, you've been doing this much longer than I even thought of doing it. You've been a great friend and always professional and friendly and courteous. Al basically just sent me a message and said, JT, I'm glad to hear you're doing better. Now it's time to get back on the horse. And Al, that is just the kick in the pants I needed today. No matter what, I was going to get out here and we were going to have an episode out for everyone. So thank you, Al, for your support. And... Everyone else that I haven't mentioned. And to the listeners all over the world, folks, I was just going through the latest country listens. It's something I do fairly regularly. People from all over the world Nepal, Iraq, of course, India and the US, and Qatar and Oman and Libya and large parts of Africa Sierra Leone, Namibia, Zimbabwe, Zambia. It's just amazing, my friends. It's really amazing to me. When I started this journey, as we've often said, I didn't know what to expect. Now, the bottom line is monetary gain from this podcast is not something I'm concerned about now. I've gotten back to work, and unfortunately, that's curtailed the time I can spend on the show. So it's not about the money, but just knowing that all over the world you're listening to what I have to say, it really does mean the world to me. And don't be afraid to contact me and send me story suggestions or stuff from your neck of the woods. I'm always happy to hear from the listeners. Now, folks, with that being said, we're going to very quickly transition into the main topic of this program. So tonight, we're bringing back, of course, one of the most common, most most oft-covered topics that JT does, which is the news of the damned. Now, I just want to say that as much as I do this for you, I also do it for me, because every time I do an episode... Whether it's an interview with an amazing guest, whether it's a deep dive into a subject like Betty and Barney Hill, or the news of the damned, I'm constantly learning things. And let's be honest, it's been so long since I put an episode out, I know lots has passed under the bridge, lots of water has gone by in the UFO community and that. And for that, I'm sorry, but the reality is, there's no point crying over spilled milk, and there's no point trying to cover all that stuff that's dead and gone, so to speak. It's out there. If I come across it, if someone sends it to me, I'll cover it, but we're not going to try and do a chronological order back from the last episode that I did, or I wouldn't get anything else done, quite frankly. For those of you who may be new listeners to the program, or those of you that might just need a refresh because it's been so long, there was a gentleman that was really one of the founding fathers of what we cover, and someone who J.T. took great inspiration in, especially as a young man, when these subjects weren't nearly as covered as they are now. And that man was named Charles Fort. And Charles Fort wrote a series of books in the early 1900s about these unexplained things, everything from missing people to UFOs to sea serpents, on and on and on it goes. Well, Charles Fort referred to any data or any subject matter that was ignored by science or excluded by science as Damn Data. Therefore, every time we do this episode, and every time we cover these subjects, it is known as... The News news of the 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 Damned. So again, my friends, if you need a bit of a refresh, or if you don't know, if you go into the show notes on this episode, you will find links to all of these articles if you would like to read them yourselves. I always try to make sure that there is a link back to the source material. Now, all of these came from Coast to Coast, and uh, you know, we've talked about Coast to Coast AM often on this program. It was uh, originally an Art Bell program, and Art hosted it for years, but... As all good things come to an end, Art passed, and he is no longer with us. I want to say 2016, he passed away, and I get that no one out there in this world is a perfect individual, but when it comes to what we cover, so many millions of people all over the world were influenced by Art Bell. You've heard me mention it time and time again on this program. So all of these articles aren't written by Coast to Coast, but they're linked from Coast to Coast. So the very first one here is very interesting, and uh, there's been talk that, as has been happening the last few Januarys, there was talk of World War Three at the beginning of the year. Seems to be an ongoing trend, folks. Not really something I'm keen on, but uh, you can't control what the media talks about. and People have been talking about it. So this one is titled, Inner Nuclear Missile Prompts Police Response at Man's Garage. So this is from February the 3rd, 2024. And this one says, authorities were notified when a man attempted to donate donate a nuclear missile to a military museum in Ohio. Upon investigation, the device was found in his, in his garage and thankfully missing its warhead. The missile, an unguided air-to-air Douglas AIR-2 genie, was acquired from a deceased neighbor who bought it at an estate sale. Despite media attention, since the missile was inert and the military did not request it back, it was left with the neighbor... To be restored for museum display. Now, that is what we often refer to on the program, a Cliff's Notes version from coast to coast. And I've got the original article here, which is from unexplainedmysteries.com. And it says Police called out after inert nuclear missile found in man's garage. The authorities were re- alerted, sorry, after the owner of the missile attempted to donate it to a military museum, which we've already established. It's not unusual to find old car parts, rusted bicycles, old boxes, and other junk stuffed away at the back of someone's garage. Lord knows I've got plenty of it stuffed in here in Tower Studios, my friends. To find a nuclear missile, on the other hand, is a different story altogether. When a man in Bellevue, uh, Washington—yes, Bellevue, JT, knows that area very well. Obviously, uh, you know the backstory of where I'm originally from. That's right in my neck of the woods, originally— recently offered to donate an inert nuclear missile to a military museum in ohio the first thing the museum did was call the police when officers arrived at the donor's home they discovered that there was really that there really was an old rusted nuclear missile in the man's garage though fortunately it was missing its nuclear warhead yet yeah, that's always a positive the bomb squad was even called to the property to ensure that there was no danger to the public according to a blog post on the bellevue police department's website The donor of the missile had actually acquired it from his deceased neighbor, who had bought it at an estate sale. Bomb squad members inspected the object and then learned that it was, in fact, a Douglas AIR-2 Genie, previously designated MB-1, an unguided air-to-air rocket that is designed to carry a 1.5-kiloton W-25 nuclear warhead, the department wrote. There was no warhead attached. (laughs) Yes, thankfully. The donor himself was reportedly extremely irritated by all the media coverage received. Because the item was inert and the military did not request it back, police left the item with the neighbor to be restored for display in a museum, the department wrote. So, yeah, interesting little one there. Now, I am kind of glad, uh, sorry folks, I can't think of the term that you have in the U.S., where the police can seize your property, your money, etc., and claim that it was from the Proceeds of ill-gotten gains. Uh, luckily, this nuclear missile was not seized on those grounds, my friends. Okay, folks. Now it's time for us to segue from the end of the world to out of this world. This one is from Space dot com, and again, I always uh, try and make sure that I link it back to the original writer and the original website so they can get their due credit. Now, this was from L- Leonard David. And this is from Space.com. And it says, it's getting closer and closer for sure. How SETI is expanding its search for alien intelligence. And this is an exclusive. Now, again, folks, we've touched on it on the program. If you don't know what SETI is, SETI stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligent Life, basically. And what it comes down to is it is the people like Carl Sagan and Seth Shostak that basically point radio telescopes mainly at different places, and try and get a response. Controversial to a lot of people, because many people feel like we shouldn't be broadcasting we're out there. If the wrong people find us, we're likely to get wiped off the face of the universe. But it is what it is, and they're not going to stop, so we have to just hope that we find warm, cuddly aliens out there, and not the type that just want to destroy our planet to make way for an intergalactic freeway. So space.com caught up with Bill Diamond, President and CEO of the SETI Institute, for an exclusive mind-stretching close-encounter discussion regarding the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. To spot potential intelligent life out there in the great beyond, first you must cast a net wide by using an array of techniques and technologies. Any fishing expedition for ET includes close in studies of life in extreme environments right here on Earth to help us recognize any signatures we might find on Mars or deep-diving through the icy shell of Jupiter's moon Europa. The search can also blend in the use of space-based telescopes to inspect Earth-like planets, circling their home stars. Then there's cupping a proverbial ear to the cosmos, using a radio telescopes to pick up any bustling interstellar cel- civilization, or perhaps look for far-off laser-pulsed communiques from extraterrestrial home bodies. These and other efforts are actively pursued by the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. Been there? Right there, not to SETI, but to Mountain View. Right there in the high-tech heartbeat of Silicon Valley. More than 100 institute scientists are busily carrying out research in astronomy and astrophysics, astrobiology, as well as exoplanets, climate, and biogeoscience, and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Space.com caught up with Bill Diamond, president and CEO of the SETI Institute for an exclusive. Okay, we've already covered this, so we'll just skip past that. Spoiler alert. It's not that old tried, true, and tired query, are we alone? Rather, it's more like, just how crowded is it? Which, again, something open minds like myself and probably the people listening and many others have been saying for decades and, if not centuries, that it's definitely not just us in the universe it'd be a pretty boring place, wouldn't it? There's a lot going on today in terms of searching for and trying to understand potential extraterrestrial life in the universe, Diamond said. Much of the first several decades of SETI, the effort has been quite minimal, looking with familiar and sensitive instruments and fairly narrow parts of the radio spectrum and random parts of the sky. So hardly anything that could be considered a comprehensive endeavor, said Diamond. But even today, in many ways, SETI's work is still in the early stages. However, more and more is taking place with an increasing number of instruments and technologies around the world. There's an extensive and expanded effort going on now, Diamond said. Cosmic collaboration. For example, there's the commensal uh, yeah, sorry, Commensal open-source multimode Inferometer cluster search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Boy, mercifully shortened, fully agree, to Cosmic SETI. All 27 antennas That constitute the Very Large Array in New Mexico have been outfitted with new gear to perform 24 7 SETI observations under a collaboration between the SETI Institute and the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, the group that operates the VLA. Yes, that's the same VLA showcased in the 1997 sci fi film Contact, complete with actress Jodie Foster adorned with a tight fitting stereo headset. In reality, the VLA was never used for SETI, Diamond noted, but now it is. Detectable Signatures Cosmic is really the most comprehensive SETI search on a single instrument in history. That's very exciting, Diamond said, and gives the Cosmic effort access to a complete and independent copy of the data streams from the entire VLA. Cosmic will analyze data for the possible presence of techno-signatures, detectable signatures and signals that shout out the presence of distant advanced civilizations. In scientific circles, techno-signatures are viewed as a subset of the far more established search for biosignatures, evidence of microbial or other primitive life loitering on some of the billions of exoplanets we now know exist. Newly Augmented For classical radio SETI, there's more going on now around the world than there has ever been, Diamond said. That uptick also includes the SETI Institute's newly augmented Allen Telescope Array, situated northeast of San Francisco. It was named after Paul Allen, co-founder of Microsoft, given his generous financial backing of the facility in its early phases. Also former owner of my favorite football team, the Seattle Seahawks, and the man who made it possible for us to finally win a title. The Allen Telescope Array, ATA, has undergone antenna redesign and now is outfitted with high-end computers, signal processors, and other electronics making it far faster than ever before. Diamond adds... The instrument is performing at a level that it's never performed at since it was built. All of that is fairly new in the last two to three years. One outcome from ATA has been its use by SETI Institute's scientists to delve into powerful fast radio bursts. We've heard a bit about that on the show. A head-scratching phenomenon wanting of explanation. Okay, sorry folks. Uh, Okay, (laughs) philanthropic gift. Sorry, some of these words, folks, have has been a long time since I've read episodes, read articles on episodes, so I do apologize if I bumble a bit over the words. A passionate booster in ATA's overhaul was Franklin Antonio, a co-founder of Qualcomm. So when I lived in San Diego, Qualcomm Stadium was the name of, I want to say the Chargers old stadium, it used to be Jack Murphy, the Chargers and formerly the Padres Stadium, so definitely a big company. So obviously he would have had a lot of money. A communications chip company, Antonio's support as an institute technical advisor continues with his philo- philanthropic gift to the SETI Institute of two hundred million dollars. After his passing last May, that bequest is sparking an action plan that will enhance the institute's multiple, uh, multidisciplinary, multi-center research, education, and outreach makeup. Diamond said. Also on the Institute's agenda is taking in and evaluating ideas from SETI researchers anywhere in the world to tap into a pool of money for such things as technology, software, or to run an experiment. If we like what you're doing, we'll fund it, Diamond said. We will kind of take the place of NASA, for the time being, as the only place in the world where you can submit a proposal to do SETI work. Those three words. Roll back time to Columbus Day in 1992 when NASA initiated a formal, more intensive SETI program. But less than a year later, Congress short-circuited the program. Is it time for the government to re-embrace the search for extraterrestrial intelligence? Yes, absolutely, Diamond responded. NASA, he said, has a trio of scientific questions it's spearheading. How does the universe work? How did we get here? And are we alone? Almost every time NASA leadership publicly speaks, said Diamond, They invoke those three words, are we alone? We all want to know. NASA clearly wants to know, as it's one of their science priorities, Diamond said. So isn't it time they get back in the business of trying to answer that question? Planets are everywhere. NASA's own Kepler Space Telescope served as the Deep Space Agency's first planet-hunting mission. During nine years of deep space scoping, Diamond emphasized, it showed our galaxy contains billions of exoplanets. It told us that planets are everywhere and a lot of them are potentially habitable. NASA is starting to chip away at SETI work. Diamond noted, A NASA-funded grant to a SETI Institute scientist is using observations from the space agency's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS for short. The intent is to purge out of the test data possible uh, technosignatures aided by artificial intelligence slash machine learning tools. So, yes, I think the winds of change are blowing a little bit in the favor of the government getting back into this business. And in my opinion, I think they should step up and do it, Diamond said. Neighborhood Watch. With all the in motion SETI research underway, just how prepared are we for a confirmed door ringing neighborhood watch revelation? The straight answer to that question is no, we are not necessarily ready. Although it depends on what the answer is, Diamond responded. It's only a matter of time before the question is answered, he added, at one level or another. We should begin to think about how we convey this information. Possible impacts to society, to religion, to politics, to technology, to government, said Diamond. I do think that with all of these technologies, modalities, instruments, looking in different ways, Diamond concluded, it's getting closer and closer for sure. So folks, interesting article. Ah, uh, JT's got mixed feelings on this one, okay? I do believe, definitely, in my heart of hearts. Out there somewhere, there are other species, other entities outside of Earth. Uh, Now, where they are, are they in alternate uh, realities, alternate dimensions, alternate universes, alternate timelines? Who knows? Okay, it is a big, hugely complex topic, as you all know. It is good to see them talking about this a bit more. It does beg the question if, this is again part of kind of the soft disclosure where we're kind of setting people up to get ready for when they do tell us there's something out there that maybe they've known about for decades or longer. Nonetheless, interesting and always good to hear that some of these people, like that former founder of Qualcomm, put their money where their mouth is because $200 million, folks. Now, to you and I, that's a massive sum. Let's say it was a tenth of his um, uh, estate when he passed away. I don't know what he was worth. But still, hey, good on him. You know, this is the kind of thing that I like. And again, obviously not doing it for the publicity because he's dead. Uh, it's great to see those kind of things. And again, Paul Allen, I really thought as far as what he did for the Pacific Northwest, he did some amazing things. He kept the Seahawks in Seattle when there were times they were talking about moving them to LA. He kept the Portland Trailblazers in Portland. He did a lot. And he continues to do a lot through charities he's set up. And again, none of us are perfect. I'm sure the man had his flaws. But it's just great to see, yet again, one of those positive things that Paul Allen did uh, continues to bear fruit for us. So we will watch this space, shall we not? We'll keep, keep our eyes on what they may find with SETI's expansion. Now, the next one. This one's very interesting, folks. We've talked, we touched on, I should say, we haven't gone in depth, but we've touched on Antarctica and the massive mysteries on that continent. Whether you believe some of the theories about Admiral Byrd and Operation High Jump and whatnot, or Nazi secret bases there, or just the fact that there could be another species there be they aliens or be they someone that we've shared this planet with for millions of years. I always find Antarctica things fascinating. And Being so close to it, and being the jumping off base for so many people, it's definitely uh, something that does pique JT's interest. Now, this one is from the BBC, and this one is titled, Antarctica Mysteries to be Mapped by Robot Plane, which I think is really smart. So this is by Georgina Renard, BBC Climate and Science Reporter. It says a team of scientists and engineers have landed in Antarctica to test a drone that will help experts forecast the impacts of climate change. The autonomous plane will map areas of the continent that have been out of bounds to researchers. It has been put to the test in extreme weather around Wales' highest peaks. Its first experiment will survey the mountains under an ice sheet to predict how quickly the ice could melt and feed into global sea level rise. Scientists want to understand Antarctica better, but they are limited by the existing technology. Strong winds, below freezing temperatures, and sudden storms are common. These dangerous conditions, as well as dark winters, and the need to transport pilots and large amounts of fuel, put limitations on use of traditionally crewed planes. The British Antarctic Survey developed the new drone with UK company Wind and, or sorry, to be easily repaired if something goes wrong. The drone was tested in... I'm not going to pronounce that, folks... Uh, basically, it's they have got the Welsh version of Snowdonia, which is a um, national park in the UK, in Wales, but I'm not going to pronounce that. I know better. Welsh is very difficult, and I don't want to offend anyone. In North Wales, a stand-in for the difficult weather and terrain of Antarctica. During a practice run in strong winds, with rain lashing, With rain lashing the airfield, engineer Rebecca Toomey explained that the drone can fly to remote areas without concerns for pilot safety. It can carry 220 pounds or 100 kgs of cargo up to 620 miles, or 1,000 kilometers. Instruments including radar and cameras are loaded into the back of the drone and on its wings. Its route is programmed in and an engineer monitors the flight from a computer. Rebecca will operate the drone from Rothera Base in Antarctica, but eventually the British Antarctic Survey... Hope to fly it from the UK. It also uses much less fuel than traditional planes. Ten barrels compared to two hundred two hundred, wow, that's massive amount on one research flight, reducing the environmental impact of scientific research on the planet. The data it collects will be processed at the British Antarctic Survey headquarters in Cambridge. Scientist Tom Jordan explains that some of it will feed into a model of the continent called Bedmap two that shows the complex shape of the land under the ice. Drawing a question mark over parts of the map, he explains that large areas of Antarctica are still unmapped because no one has ever been able to get there. You can see the mountain ridge under the ice here and here. Does that continue across? Or parts under sea level? I don't know, he says. This survey work is really exciting because it's a proper blank in the map. Antarctica's vast ice covers huge mountainous ranges, some the size of the European Alps, and trenches and valleys. Some areas are below sea level. It is vital that scientists understand this topography because it determines how quickly the ice will melt. An ice sheet exposed to warming waters will probably melt more quickly, but if complex mountains block its path, it will decline slower, Tom says. In its first experiment, radar on the drone will fire radio waves at an ice sheet called Fuchs-Piedmont. Some will go into the ice sheet, hit the ground at the base, and bounce back. The drone will listen for those reflections and use them to draw the shape of the land. It builds up this picture going line by line. This is another thing that drones are great for, doing things that are really boring. Hey, that's definitely, we'll take a break and let the robot drone do that. Current models of global sea level rise from melting ice sheets have wide margins, but with a better understanding of Antarctica's topography, Tom says scientists can make more accurate predictions. That will help us plan the future, he says. The first flights will be in the next few weeks. Other experiments include surveys of marine life like krill, which are a vital part of the food chain, and surveys of environmentally sensitive areas. Now, folks, we do ask ourselves a few questions. When I say that, I mean, there are some of us, like JT, who are very skeptical of these kind of things. Is that really what they're doing, or is that a cover story that they're looking for some other things down there? Now, even at the very mildest, so even if you don't go into the whole Agartha thing, You don't go into the secret Nazi bases. And what I mean is not just that they had like a whaling station, but that they have a deep underground base that's there now and they fly UFOs out of there. If you don't go in for that, that's fine. But if we go a bit milder and we talk about Admiral Byrd, there were definitely areas of Antarctica he talked about flying over that were iceless, different valleys and that. So not saying it's like um, Paradise Lost, but there are definitely areas down there that are arid. Uh, They don't get snow in the Antarctic summer. It does make you wonder, okay, is this something we're looking at to settle or exploit different governments? I don't know if you know this, folks, but there was an Antarctic Treaty signed, I think it was just after World War II, basically saying no one was going to go down there and exploit Antarctica. But that treaty does run out at some point. And there are all kinds of countries queuing up or lining up to get their hands on Antarctic land and all the minerals and riches down there from coal to oil to uranium and all kinds of minerals. So, does make me wonder, hey, what are we up to? Are they really down there mapping to see what's down there or preparing defensive areas? Who knows? Interesting nonetheless, my friends, and we will continue to monitor that situation. Now, the next article is from The Sun. Now, The Sun has got a bit of a mixed reputation. It is considered by many to be a tabloid. And again, I don't believe everything I read in any publication, be it tabloid or newspaper or somebody's website but I do at least like to listen, and I've seen this in a few other places. It says, uh, Stealth Mode. Flying saucers hovering eerily over U.S. leave fishermen fearing alien invasion. The truth is down to another aircraft. And this is from Betty White, or sorry, Debbie White, not Betty White, (laughs) not the actress. And this was published on February the 2nd. So it says, The strange sight freaked people out in Florida, and that's what I had heard about Florida fishermen seeing some strange things in the sky. Flying saucers appeared to hover eerily over the U.S., leaving a confused fisherman fearing an alien invasion. But experts examining video of the strange UFO shapes soon revealed the truth, bizarrely linking it to another type of aircraft. Yeah, and these look like venti... I, I think it's ventricular clouds or hole-punch clouds. That's what I see very clearly in the photo that I see. What is this? A fisherman had no clue what the alien-like clouds were near Key West, Florida. Again, they look like hole-punch clouds to me, so not a whole lot of mystery. A fisherman filmed the strangely mesmerizing footage of UFO-like clouds, so they kind of pawned us off and said, oh, they're seeing UFOs, but really, folks, it's UFO-like clouds, which, again, these are your classic hole-punch clouds. Uh, and on a note, as you all know, we've already covered this. One of the things that they blamed the O'Hare UFO incident on when, yeah, it was, what was described was nothing like a hole punch cloud. Okay. Okay. So a fisherman filmed the strangely mesmerizing footage of UFO like clouds that he spotted near Key West. Resembling flying saucers hovering above the sea, the wispy layer of cloud was dotted with multiple perfectly safe circular, denser ones. The fisherman sought help on social media, where he shared footage of the unusual sight and asked, Has anyone seen clouds like this before? Yes, I have, hundreds of times. Not in person, but photos. We were fishing off Key West. I've seen enough alien invasion movies to know exactly what those are, joked one person, while another responded, UFOs in stealth mode. <laughs> it later It later transpired that the fall streak hole, also known as a hole punch cloud, These are large circular or elliptical gaps that can appear in cirrocumulus, small fleecy clouds or patchy altocumulus clouds, according to the National Weather Service. And again, we've seen this many times, so I'm just scrolling down. It's talking about uh, planes uh, punching holes through these clouds. So there's another little uh, part here. It says Spaceship Matt Devitt, Chief Meteorologist at Wink News in Florida, wink, wink, Shared photos of the clouds on Facebook. How cool is this? Not a UFO, but a Florida hole-punch cloud spotted this week in Everglade City, created by a plane flying through super-cooled water droplets in the cloud layer, which then turns them into ice crystals because of the interaction. Uh, so yeah, folks, um, that article was a bit of a fizzer. Sorry about that. I didn't know until I read it, as I usually don't, uh, that <laughs> it was just going to be some hole-punch clouds. So on to the next. So this one is, again, from unexplainedmysteries.com. Now, this one is really interesting for those of us that follow history as well as the paranormal and the unexplained. This one is by T.K. Randall, published on February 4th, and it says, Scientists claim to have solved World War II Foo Fighter UFO mystery. And this is one of the most enduring mysteries of World War II. During World War II, pilots on both sides reported witnessing strange phenomena in the skies over Europe and beyond. These peculiar objects, which sparked rumors of secretive weapons testing over the battlefields of the Second World War, often manifested as mysterious lights, spherical-shaped cloud-like formations, or red balls of fire that remained a mystery both during and after the war. Now, though, the phenomenon may finally have an answer, at least partially, courtesy of researchers from the Universities of California, Arizona, and the Harvard-Smithsonian. According to their new study, some of the objects described as Foo Fighters were most likely plasmas, or ionized gases, which can manifest in various strange ways. Similar phenomena have been witnessed by astronauts on numerous occasions. These plasmas are electromagnetic entities that have a variety of shapes and sizes, said study co-author Dr. Rudolf Schilt of the Harvard-Smithsonian. They have repeatedly approached aircraft, or sorry, spacecraft and the space shuttles and are attracted by electromagnetic activity, including thunderstorms. Based on video, photographic, and computerized analysis, including reports by military officers and astronauts, we believe these plasmas accounted for at least some of the numerous reports of UFOs and unidentified aerial phenomena over the last several thousand years, including the Foo Fighters observed by German, Japanese, and Allied pilots during World War II. So, end of article. Now, I'm glad that they say some of, and they've hedged their bets, because... The plethora of these sightings in World War II by pilots, both German and Allied, and uh, also unknown to a lot of people, in the Pacific by Japanese pilots and Allied pilots. It just seems like there was a hell of a lot of them compared to other wars. We did hear about UFOs in the Korean War, but not really the Foo Fighters. Same in Vietnam, same in the Gulf War. It's interesting. So if it's basically planes and atmosphere and thunderstorms, you would be thinking we would be seeing them on a constant basis by people in commercial planes. Now, I get commercial planes fly high, but so did bombers in World War II. So again, folks, I'm not saying that they're completely wrong. I think that it is a percentage. But as with so many UFO sightings, I think that this will be a small percentage and will definitely explain some of the cases, cases, but definitely not all and definitely not the better documented more evidenced cases so anyway interesting nonetheless and i do like it when science comes up with things but again this is an old phenomenon there is a famous valley in norway i haven't covered yet and a scientist has gone there with stop motion video and photography and he has found these plasma balls flying around for uh, this was back in the 90s so this is nothing new okay So last but not least, here we go, my friends. This is from the Mirror UK, which is by many considered, again, to be another tabloid-type publication in the UK. But I find some pretty good stuff in here. Now, this one takes us away from the UFOs, and we do still cover history. But this says, Inside Coca-Cola Air's abandoned mansion, said to be haunted by a bloodstained ghost. An elderly woman said to be a former nurse has been seen wandering around the eerie property. Reputed to be haunted by one-time hospital patients, including a bloodstained ghost. Now, this is from Graham Murray, news reporter, and published on the 3rd of February. A peek behind the doors of Coca-Cola Air's abandoned mansion has been given its, and sorry, has been given, and it's said to be haunted by a bloodstained ghost. A.S.A. Buddy Griggs Candler Jr. once owned Briarcliff Mansion and turned the fizzy drinks brand into a world, but it is also reported to be haunted by former hospital patients, including blood-stained goat. patient effort behind the mansion in the U.S. told the Southerner that uh, he went the Erie property many years ago. Yeah, I was wondering, because talking about the U.K., blah, 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 and I'm thinking Coca-Cola's from the U.S., and I thought maybe it was the distributor in the U.S., but no, we are talking about a mansion in the U.S. So it says, he said, I remember looking at her hands as she was talking and seeing blood where she was scratched and picked at her skin, where whatever happened had obviously taken some toll on her. Asa Griggs Candler Jr. bought the property from inventor John Pemberton for twenty-three hundred dollars, or eighteen hundred and fifty pounds, in eighteen ninety-one. He decided to sell Coca-Cola again in nineteen nineteen, bringing in the family millions to Barcliff Mansion in in Atlanta. Sorry, Briarcliff Mansion, in Atlanta, Georgia, which had two swimming pools, a golf course a ballroom, and a solarium. Sounds a bit like the Beverly Hillbillies. He also had many of magician Houdini's props on the walls of his mansion and claimed they were close friends. The massive home, which was finished in 1922, had huge gardens in where elephants, lions, and gorillas were kept. Love Property reports the gorilla who lived in the private zoo once escaped and bit a house guest, who then sued Candler $10,000 or £8,150 in damages. But Briarcliff became a scandal in the 1930s because of the state of the property. It was thrown into the spotlight in 1931 after Candler Jr.'s butler and personal magic assistant, Jose Cruz, shot his girlfriend and took his own life on the Briarcliff grounds. Okay, sorry, I just have to scroll down, folks. Well, Candler Jr. struggled to shake off the negative attention from local people and began to decline in the 1930s due to poor investments and expensive hobbies. He has, he was then declared bankrupt and was forced to sell the mansion to the General Services Administration, or the GSA, in 1948. The mere previously reported Candler Jr. fought alcoholism for most of his life and passed away from liver cancer in 1953. It was transformed into the 141-bed psychiatric hospital from 1965 to 1997. But images of the mansion show it. Uh, show it. Sorry, uh, show. Okay, so they've got a typo here. So it should say, show the home. Show the home before it became a creepy house of horrors. Again, sorry, it's just poor writing. In addition to its bloodstained ghosts, the property had a chilling message written in graffiti on an indoor fountain, which read, It ran with blood. The mansion now sits on the Briarcliff campus of Emory University, which purchased the property in 1998. The university had plans to the inhabitants. So, folks, interesting haunted house uh, article to close out the news. I think teaser just to mention it. But Paranormality Magazine went out of their way to uh, name the Paranormal Sun one of their uh, highlighted podcasts, spotlight podcasts. And I just wanted to thank, say thank you to Paranormality, good friend of the show, of course, our friend down there in Florida. Chaz of the Dead has had a lot to do with paranormality, and definitely thank you for the shout-out. So, my friends, wherever you are in the world, Africa, Asia, North South America, all over the globe, all those listening, in over 150 different countries and territories now, my friends, thank you again from the bottom of my heart. It's great to be back, and I will talk to you sooner rather than later this time. Stay safe, my friends. Have a great week.